Hello, everyone. Welcome. Greetings to our global audience. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever it is, depending on where you're in the world you're watching or listening to us from. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know a little bit more about what we do, just head on over to officehours.global. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Um, note, you can use the QR code, which is sitting, I think, down over here. There it is, right next to me. Uh, you can also look at that little link at the top of it, the askofficehours.global. Uh, just type that into any URL. It'll get you into our Q&A system. So you can ask questions. Questions drive our show every day. So uh, please do that. If you're in the Mukana system today, you're going to get a special treat. Get your headphones ready so that you're going to be able to appreciate the second hour. We're doing it on Dynamics. And in the meantime, we're going to try a little what they call a reverse Q&A with you. If you use the third tag in Mukana, and those of you who have been in the system before, you know there are tags that you can put next to your question when you ask your questions. Instead of the two that we normally do, one for the general questions and one for the second hour, we have a third one today, Describe Dynamics. And we're going to ask you to answer one of those questions in 15 words or less. How would you describe dynamics? How do you plan for dynamics when you mix things? So we're going to have a little two-way in the second hour. Should be fun to do. That's all coming up after we finish our first hour. And that is where we're headed right now. Mitch, what's our first question? Thanks, Bill. First in is Peter Moore from Auckland, New Zealand, asking more of a PSA. I installed Sonoma on my unsupported Mac through OpenCore Boot as I'm enrolled in the Apple Developer Program. Why not? I did back it up, though, and I'm expected on this with Mac OS on Gmu. I'm not sure what that is. Gmu on Linux. Don't do this. Hmm. Interesting. Jeff, do you understand? Did you parse that through, and can you give him some help? Help? No. I can give him some some sympathy. Um, I, I thank him for the, the great thing of don't do this. But boy, when I see those words, I did not back it up, though. So Peter, I think, is calling out to the world as his PSA today is not uh, don't do this. It's have you remembered to back up? Have you checked yeah. your backups? Do you have things backed up he, in multiple places? I think he said he did back up. Oh, he did back it up. Okay. Well, I misread. But anyway, a great PSA for every single day. Remember to back up. Yeah, I don't think there's a more important message to anybody who's dealing with computers, which are normally very reliable, but can be fragile. Mickey, what do you think? Yeah, with uh, any sort of uh, build or setup that is not officially supported by the OS or the software that you're using or the the tools that you're using in general, um, only do it in a dev machine or a uh, R&D machine. Do not deploy this in your actual production day-to-day -day use uh, machines. Yeah, that's always, I think, wise advice. Let's sneak on to our next question. Sneaking away with T.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota, my main Mac, which runs Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Remote Desktop, Audio Hijack, Loopback, Lightroom, Photoshop, and Unity Comms all day, every day, is still running Mac OS 13, otherwise known as Ventura. Is it safe to update to Mac OS 14 Sonoma yet, or should I stay put? Mickey, start us off, and then Jeff will help us out. Yeah, uh, TJ and I have discussed the, these sort of topics in uh, in uh, detail over the past couple of years. But my take is uh, if you do not need any uh, feature in uh, in Sonoma that uh, that in order for you to get your job done, then uh, if you and your current machine or installation is operational, it it uh, works well. Then there is no need to update. Um, if only update if you if you need something in, in the new 
OS. And going back to what I mentioned in, in the previous um, question, uh, I always uh, install and thoroughly, thoroughly test new OSs and versions of software on R&D machines before deploying them into production. Um, that way I can assure zero downtime because uh, uh, in in um, in an industry where the the deadline was always yesterday, I need <laughs> machines that work. I need machines that are essentially appliances. Just get the job done. They're giving you deadlines of yesterday. Mine are three days ago. That's terrible, <laughs> Jeff. And and I'll throw one additional um, piece in there, which is to check with. Uh, the vendors of any software that you use that is mission critical to to what you use, and especially when we're talking about a major OS update, um, invariably, if you can check the change log of the uh, versions, you want to see somewhere along the way, preferably not just last week, added support for, in this case, Sonoma. If they just added it last week, probably not reliable yet. If they added it a few months ago when they should have been working on it, uh, you know, when it was even first released to developers, and they've had a few generations of updates on their end, and all the software you want you know will work on that newer OS, then, okay, I always like to wait to a point one. So, for instance, I did that 14.1. In fact, I waited a little bit longer. And, interesting story, it doesn't mean they won't break something in a point release. So, 14 would have worked fine, for instance, for all my setup after the software worked. 14.1 added a fair bit of additional security restrictions to software developers, and some of them didn't react. So, for example, it broke the... Uh, some things in OBS, which I'm now dealing with and, and unexpected. And that didn't happen in 14, happened in 14.1. So as Mickey said, that's the, that's the bottom line, is test anything on another machine, a test machine, before you put it into production. Mick Mitchell. I agree with uh, Mickey. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, that's generally a good generalized device, uh, advice to give. And the other uh, general advice is don't ever upgrade anything in the middle of a project because then you're really hanging it out there. Mickey? Yeah, just to add with the, to what Jeff was mentioning earlier, um, don't just wait for uh, – don't simply rely on waiting on a point uh, upgrade release and also reading forums. Test your specific setup. For example, since we're in audio day, um, test your test a version of a plugin that an audio plugin that you're using with your specific version of the DAW running on your specific version of the OS running on your specific hardware. It's not just a single element that you need to test. You need to test the entire combination of the of the system that you're running. Wise advice, Jeff. Final up. I'll just add one other thing where I'll disagree with folks a little bit, which is this this concept of need. Um, you, sometimes you don't know what you need until you have it. And there is a difference between what do you need and what could you benefit from. So, you know, Steve Gibson, very famously in Security Now, you know, I don't know, is he, I think he's maybe now in Windows 7, right? He was on that Windows XP until... 
two, I don't know, two years ago because it had what he needed. So there's always some features that fall into that category of, wow, that I could benefit from them. Maybe that will make something more convenient. Maybe it'll make something a little easier. And that's valuable also, but you must weigh them and test them against what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's all perfectly fair. I will say there's a difference, too, between what's your orientation? Are you an experimentalist? Do Do you need to live out on the edge because you help other people with their problems? So if you're going to be doing troubleshooting for folks on a new OS or something like that, you better get on it pretty soon and discover the problems for yourself. On the other hand, if you're mission critical part of a production change and everybody's relying on you to get your work done, I think Mickey's approach, which is triple check, every time so that you know when you need to do your work, you can get it done. That's the the most important attribute. Mickey, you wanted to follow up again a little bit? Yeah, just a last point. And um, going back to what the, Jeff mentioned about uh, looking at what, what new tools may benefit you. That's why um, I keep R&D machines where if I uh, hear of something new and I want to test it out, I run it on those machines so that th- does not affect my productions. Yeah, that makes good sense. All right. We've been on this a little bit. Next question. Next one in from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Peter asked, Behringer released this on my wish list. What are your thoughts? Looks like Jeff Francis has a little bit of a thought, Jeff. A little bit of a thought. This is the Behringer uh, UBXA, which is their recreation of the... uh, Oberheim uh, OBXA, which is kind of quintessential 1980s synth. There's a lovely picture of Getty Lee from Rush uh, in front of that. So Rush, Van Halen, the police, all those kind of sounds from the 80s. Um, Oberheim just did their own release of this soon through Sequential in May. So I would think theirs is actually the faithful recreation Whereas uh, Behringer, as Behringer has done in the past, is reverse engineering things. And uh, I believe the original developer of the voltage-controlled oscillators of this uh, spoke out against this when Behringer first announced it. Doesn't mean it might not be a great synth and probably a lot less expensive than the uh, sequential version. But uh, there you have it. Wow, that really helped me understand the process. So thank you, Jeff. Uh, Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael, many inside and outside of the technical community talk about generative AI as the next disruptive technology, but two of the leading LLMs, GPT-4 and Claude, still have usage caps. Do you think we'll ever see LLMs available that aren't capped? Thankfully, our favorite pundit about AI, John Preto, is here. John, tell us. I wish this question was asked tomorrow because tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of ChatGPT. And remember, ChatGPT was an application. GPT-3 had been out two years prior to that in which people had access to the API and were using that um, using that access to, to ChatGPT-3 for two years prior to Ch- ChatGPT, the application coming out. And so what's going to happen here, Douglas, is that... It, the the actual backend models are going to go big into the into the cloud. Everybody's going to have access to that. And then the client side, you're going to see it embedded everywhere. So Windows is integrated into the OS, and you're going to see it integrated into every application that you use. And then you'll have it integrated into application on the phone. So on a usability, it, it's going to grow. The reason why it's locked now is because GP, the OpenAI didn't see much traction in the last 
two years prior to them launching GPT, GPT, with that amount of success, they had to throttle it. And so once they get through that, they'll be able to uh, change those dials. And then the integration of that elsewhere, uh, it's going to be much easier to access the models in a hybrid in a hybrid uh, architecture. Thank you for that, Jeff. Cohen. The short answer is yes. I mean, you know, we see that with anything that is rare and scarce at first. And I mean, we had cell phone limit, um, you know, number of minutes you could talk and, and you know, uh, Internet was the same thing. You know, now we have unlimited Internet. We have unlimited calling on most cell phone plans. So, sure, uh, the business model has to support it. Um and for example, what Bing is doing with GPT is pretty interesting. I, I don't know, maybe John knows. I, I don't believe there's a limit in terms of if you're, if you're using it through Bing, their implementation of GPT. I don't believe there's limits for what it does. Now, it does uh, some things differently than what Chat GPT does. And, you know, Chat GPT, of course, is in the process now, not like anything interesting is going on. I'm sorry, OpenAI, not like anything interesting is going on at the company there. But that is that battle between that initial concept of a not for profit and then realizing, hey, this not for profit is costing us like eight gajillion dollars a day in terms of infrastructure. So yeah, it's rough. So that's you know there's some turmoil and battle around that but but once these business models are figured out and bing of course has advertising yeah hmm. it's it's such an interesting thing now i'm i'm trying to wrap my head constantly around all these changes and thankfully i am so grateful for office hours and the people that i know here some of whom we just heard from um about trying to keep up with this i'm i'm curious this is just a little thing in the back of my mind, whether inf I'm, I'm thinking of a concept called information homogenization that I was just dreaming about the other day. Are these large language models which get fed by everybody, but fed things that are already known as opposed to things that are wildly outside the norm? And I wonder how that's going to affect things over the course of long periods of time. And I have no answer at all. But those are the best questions. The one you can ponder and not come up with an answer because an answer at this point I think is unknowable. Jeff, what 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 are your thoughts here before we leave? And I'll throw out one other thing, which is I highly encourage folks, if you haven't, to play with BARD, Google BARD. Um, again, also don't think there's limits with that. And, um, you know, I constantly test and run things through chat GPT and BARD, and it really is uh, a game of hit or miss. You know, on one thing, one will do extremely well, and then vice versa, and, and so I often try and, and get differing results on better than others on both, and, and I don't believe there's any model, I'm sorry, any limits there. Interesting. Well, it, we'll certainly be talking about this here on Office Hours. We encourage your questions about this leading edge of how these large language models and how things like ChatGPT affect every aspect of not just our working lives, but I think our lives in general. It's getting folded into so many technologies rely on that uh, the next few years are going to be fascinating to see how it develops. Let's head on to the next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, Logic Tech is starting to include webcams, lights, etc. into their Sync Global Device Management System via local LogiTune app. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Jeff Cohen. 
Man, you got me worked up just seeing the question uh, have, uh, you could call them strong feelings about this. Uh, I think it's abhorrent what Logitech has done with their software. Uh, I've used and loved Logitech products for a very long time, and I do like the hardware products. Uh, Their software has become so invasive and so intrusive that I've actually communicated with them and told them that their software is now malware, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it wants to integrate with your calendar. You know, I, I don't need my mouse control software to integrate with my calendar. I don't want it trying to do that either. And so, and they've made it intentionally difficult to separate some of these things to say, let me control the functionality of my mouse and don't run these other 30 processes in the background and bog down my computer and constantly try and phone home and, you know, see how much I weigh today and all that stuff. So um, I am not a fan. Uh, For the record, I'm still running. I had to go find to make sure I could use older versions of the software before they started doing all this stuff, before, you know, Scrooge McGoo started working there and told him to change anything. So, um, yeah, so I have some feelings about that. (laughs) It seems like it. The Internet of Things. Good things or bad things? Mitchell, what do you think? I I agree with Jeff wholeheartedly. I don't don't like any software that does that. They want to take over your computer. I have a problem. Well, I know it's not part of the question, but it's the same issue uh, with Norton. Trying to get it off my computer, it's like spam. (laughs) I see a future where your scale is going to berate you every morning. You're up two pounds. Stop it. Uh, Let's go to the next question. And it's a QR code coming from Matthew in Oakland, currently sending video over SDI and HDMI to SDI converter, then SDI to an HDMI uh, converter. Is there an updated or preferred way to handle long runs? Ethernet solution? Let's start with Mickey here. Mickey? Yeah, SDI uh, either over uh, copper, coax, or SDI over fiber is still by far the most common um, professional-grade video transport used in in uh in production um if you want to look at the future and take a step up there are um the the industry will is currently uh moving towards audio and video over ip protocols um if you're looking for one that is uh truly uncompressed um you you would want to study up on simt 2110 um if you're okay with utilizing compressed formats or or protocols uh, there are protocols like um, uh, NDI and also uh, Dante AV that could uh, that um, could be useful for you. Though, of course, with with uh, these new AV over IP uh, st- protocols, um, you would need a quite a significant investment in your not um, IP network infrastructure. Jeff Francis. So Mickey got two of the ones I was going to talk about. Uh, the third. You need to be careful when you ask an Ethernet solution because people refer to uh, twisted pair wiring, CAT5, CAT6, CAT5e, um, as Ethernet sometimes. And so there's a difference of whether you're talking about networked video, which is uh, the NDI and the Dante AV and uh, also AVB, um, and using just twisted 
pair, four twisted pair cabling as a an extension. So there are things uh, that take an HDMI and convert to using Cat5 or Cat5e cable to extend these. These are the cheaper solution, not what Nick, Mickey was talking about with a fully networked system. So when you say Ethernet, there there are a cabling system and then there is a networked system. So be sure you're you're understanding which you're talking about. The the cabling is a one-to-one camera to destination. So it's an HDMI in it converts it to a cable. You have a long cheap cable in between and then you convert back to HDMI at the other end. Sort of a a less expensive and less distance version of the fiber extension. And then going to fully networked the video is is networked and you need network switches and you need to be a network engineer at least somewhat. Excellent. Matthew, hope that helped. Don't forget, this show is run by your questions, and you drive the topics, and through your votes, if you're voting in the regular Mulcana system, you do, you drive the priority of those questions. Also, don't forget, in our second hour today, we're going to be doing something a little bit new. For those of you who are putting your questions in the Mulcana system, normally you have a couple of tags, the regular general questions and the second hour questions. Today, we've added a third qu- uh, category. Actually, we have four up there now that I'm looking at. There's the general questions for the main show, but then we have described dynamics and an untagged question area. So take a look through those and decide where your questions go. If you tag your questions when you put them in, it's important, and it's particularly important today, particularly that described dynamics question, as uh, Jeff Francis, I'm sorry, as um, uh, Marty told us uh, before the show, we're going to be doing a little back and forth, something new for the second hour in audio today. So please participate in that and your questions in the Describe Dynamics tag. I'll be part of what we do in our second hour and this experiment. So that's the, the kind of ad. Now it's time to sneak to our next question. Sneaking away with Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, and residing here on our panel. Uh, what's currently the best D-Reverb plugin for dealing with dialogue recorded in poorly treated rooms? I find Isotope RX to be fairly destructive by the time you tame a fair bit of reverb. So we got a lot of opinions on here. I'm going to let Mitchell go first, then Mickey, then Jeff. Mitchell. Yeah, I've used uh, Isotope a bunch of times. It, it works wonders, but it can't uh, completely do miracles. Um, I've worked also with the uh, the plugin available in Adobe Audition and the one that's uh, resident in Premiere. It's a heavy lift for a system to determine what is the room tone and what is the reverb and repeating reverb sounds that are accompany a, a reverb sound. The best advice I can give is just use it very sparingly. You're not going to eliminate it, but you're going to reduce it. I want to say that's the second best advice after mic it correctly and treat your rooms properly. Anyway, Mickey, sometimes you can't. Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm assuming that uh, you're trying to um, uh, to clean up dialogue as opposed to other elements such as uh, music, musical elements or sound effects. Um, there are multiple tools that I use. Um, each one uh, results in dif- uh, give, gives different results, so I try each one. Uh, generally speaking, Zynaptic um, Unveil has been has delivered pretty natural uh, results for me on dialogue, um, uh, but specifically on um, for treating early reflections. SPL's D-verb has been pretty good for me on early reflections. Not so much on reverb tales, but uh, like say in a small small room with hard surfaces, uh, 
which costs a lot of um, uh, early reflections, uh, SPLD verb is my go-to. And to an extent, Accentize um, DX Revive has also been uh, good at uh, taming some some reverb. There you go. Jeff Cohen. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious if anyone has tried um, uh, Clarity, I don't know if it's VX, but Clarity, a Waves Clarity D reverb, which is fairly new. Um, I will tell you because some of the new AI-based tools, like, for example, uh, Descript. Now, there's no granularity, so Descript has this audio processing. They just call Studio Sound, which just does everything. You can't, you know, separate out and fine-tune uh, reverb versus noise. But I will tell you, I mean, and, and Mitch, they do perform miracles. It is uncanny. Again, the problem is there's no granularity to the settings yet. Maybe we'll get it. Um, but, you know, I think there's a difference. Like Isotope, for example, you can let it learn that sound and determine the best settings but then those settings will be applied uniformly throughout the entire recording whereas something like that adobe also has their new um it's part of their upcoming podcast editor but it's also uh, a separate tool right now with some caps uh, they do the same thing you know where it, it seems like they are dynamically changing they're they're analyzing the entire thing and and it is it is remarkable what they do and and then still keep some of the more of the quality and fidelity of what you're trying to fix so i'm optimistic about the future at least mickey you want to come back in yeah i just want to add as well that um i i mentioned a couple of tools earlier and um i use each tool um uh, very lightly and i often get much, much, much better results by doing multiple passes, um, multiple light passes as as opposed to one very heavy one and use each tool to specifically target a, a, um, a problem. Like I'll use, as I mentioned earlier, SPLD verb to tame the early reflections. And for the reverb tails, I'll go use synaptic for that. Um, light passes as opposed to heavy passes. Uh, multiple light passes instead of a single heavy pass. Mitchell, I, I like that advice. I think that makes a lot of sense because some of these uh, uh, plugins, if you use them incorrectly, will add more subtleties and problems than you're trying to get rid of in the first place. I'm very uh, enthused about what might happen with AI because now we're talking about a completely different genre of uh, you know cleaning things up. Yeah, I'm also reminded, is, is particularly when you're at the beginning of this stuff, I know I made the mistake a lot in my early career of doing a bunch of changes and then not realizing that when I threw a general compression on the whole thing at the end, I would get some unintended things because I had notched out certain things early and then I'm compressing the results of that changed sound and suddenly it would get harsher or less listenable than I had intended, even though it didn't sound like that as I was proceeding. By the time I got everything in place, it was not working as well as I should have. I guess it's kind of like maybe starting with a salty meat and then adding more salt because the recipe called for it. You know, it's like, no, I should have been smart enough to say it already had enough of that. Let's not use just 
my normal add two tablespoons of salt to this thing that I'm cooking. So anyway, it's complicated. That's that's why audio is such a fascinating part of our industry. There's so much subtlety in doing it correctly. And I applaud everybody on the panel here who spent a large part of our panel here has spent their entire lives learning this stuff and are willing to share their their expertise. So thank you guys. Um, let's move on to the next question. Here's David Brady from New York, New York, asking, Sonoma breaks virtual cameras that don't conform to Apple's modern systems extension, including NDI virtual camera. How many have rolled things back? Uh, let's start with John Preto. John. So Chris Fenwick just talked about this, and, and uh, Jeff Cohen just mentioned this. 14, 14.11 broke some virtual camera extensions, especially in OBS. Uh, Chris has a, a command line patch to bring this back online, so... I don't think it's a big deal. Good. So if you're specifically affected by this, at least there's a place you can go to get some relief. Jeff Cohen, what do you think? Yeah, um, John nailed it. This is, and that is precisely the problem I was referring to previously. So uh, you're not alone. It also broke uh, the the same driver for OBS. And I, I landed yesterday after I found that problem on the same exact article and will be trying that very fix today. And we'll see if I ever end up back on the show again. <laughs> we'll look forward to seeing you. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Let's move into the next question. Gabriel Ung from Malaysia asks, hey, 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 check one, two. Our common phrases during mic sound checks for events. Uh, what are sound engineers listening for when using those phrases? And what are other methods the panelists use for sound checks? Thanks. Jeff Francis, start us out. Oh, there's so many jokes about how sound engineers can't count to three. Uh, check one, two. I, I suppose check has a really nice transient, which gives you a burst of high frequencies. Um, personally, I can't stand listening to that. And I try to train all my students to have something to say when they walk up to a microphone. Two of my personal uh Favorites in my arsenal is the the preamble to the Constitution because I grew up uh, with Schoolhouse Rock, so I don't sing it, but I can do uh, you know We the People. And then the other is uh, uh, Listen, my children, you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in '75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year, right? Nice, old fellow, Marty. Uh, one hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four corpus porpoises, five, you know, and it goes on to 10. What we're listening for, we're listening for multiple things. We're, we're listening for level. We're listening for lack of distortion. We're listening for intelligibility, which is all tied up in consonants and transients. And I think it's also a sobriety test if you make them okay. say corpus porpoises. <laughs> you can't say that if you're under any influences. Anyway, I'm sorry I stepped on you, Marty. Did you finish up your, your comment? Oh, well, it, it it it's tied to multiple things. So we're looking for um, we're looking for volume. We're looking for lack of distortion. We're looking for intelligibility, which is tied up in in uh, consonants and transients. And we're looking for a lack of resonances. So whether you're in, we're typically talking about a live situation in front of a PA system. And so we're, we're looking for all of those things. Jeff, go on. I'll just add that I'm not particularly a fan of any kind of memorized dialogue, uh, because as you heard, of course, subconsciously, even from Jeff, the way he recited that, is very different than the way he just speaks normally. 
um, the the cadence is different. The the consistency is there's more consistency in in that than there would be just in normal speech. So I think, of course, whatever it is. Now, if you know someone's going to be singing and you go up there and you know recite poetry, it's not a great mic check. So of course, you need to do what the person will be doing in front of the microphone. And and I think just natural dialogue, uh, ask someone a question and let them answer you into the mic, whatever it is, you want to really try and recreate what you're about to capture or attempt to in the live performance. Mitchell? I'd like to add two more checks. Uh, sibilance, which can be a problem. Uh, it can splatter and sound horrible on a big sound system. And if you're on the edge of feedback, uh, feedback is a, is a problem that's going to come up at some point during the performance. So checking both of those things uh, are also important. Yeah, I, a lot of good advice here. I sometimes just say, tell me what you had for lunch yesterday uh, to get that conversational thing going. Next question. Next question from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Opinions on the waveform-free DAW. Ooh, this should be interesting. Jeff Francis. So I uh, haven't used it. So here I am giving opinions about something I haven't used, but, uh, you know, that happens every day. I've used uh, earlier uh, traction products. Uh, the, their earlier, I can't remember the, the name of it, but they had a an, an previous free DAW. What I find these incredibly useful for is very simple situations. Um, Waves used to have a thing called Tracks Live that was a multi-channel uh, recorder, and it was, it was incredibly dumb. I wouldn't call it a DAW. It literally had faders and pans and mutes, but it would track multiple channels on a older computer without problem. And so it was a thing that you would hook up to PA system and, and track, you know, like from Dante or something. And you could use it to do virtual sound checks because it would do playback uh, through the same number of channels as the recording came in. So I can see traction being useful for those sorts of things. Uh, they do sell you lots of add-ons to make this into a more fully featured DAW. Um, but for people getting started, for people who have small needs, uh, I think this is a great option. So there actually, it's a DAW without the display of any waveforms. How do you how do you tell where you no, are? No, no, it's not waveform. It's not waveform. It's not free of waveforms. The DAW's name is Waveform. It's ah. the Waveform DAW, and the price is free. Okay, and then that and then makes... you can add on you can add on packages. Like if you want video, <laughs> it's fifty dollars to add video to it. If you want to add greater uh, music mixing tools, it's a fifty dollar add on for that. Thank you. So, yeah. You unbroke the, the, my brain. What do I you think, mean? A, a I think you've waves. just discovered the problem with their <laughs> with their naming. I'm yeah. with Bill on that one. Yeah. What? What? Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> Jeff, <laughs> I'll just give a little plug for the for the folks that just refuse to to do any kind of promotion or anything else, uh, which is Reaper. It's my preferred DAW. Uh, the functionality, it, it seems to just be unlimited, the the scripting, everything else you can do. But I, I think you might find that, you know, you can try it for free. Technically, there's no limits. You know, they do rely a bit on the honor system there. And then the the first license that you can purchase is $60. And, and then they differentiate that from a full commercial license. Um, and so I would look at, you know, what will you need? If you need to add on features that will get you up to, you know, even that much, 50, you know, you can do some light 
to moderate video editing actually in Reaper as well. Uh, but there's, it comes with so much. You probably have all of the functionality you will need out of the box with native plugins. And by the way, it is extremely efficient um, on your machines. I mean, Reaper works faster on one of my old machines than virtually every other DAW on my modern M2. It's extremely light, extremely efficient, and there's there's tons of YouTubers that do music on Reaper. It, it is It blows my mind every day. Yeah, the only hit I've ever taken on is just the complexity. It sometimes can be a little hard and you have to do some serious a learning curve. time with it, yeah, to get get functional and, and good at it. Uh, but that's true of a lot of things. Let's get to the next question. And it's uh, QR code question time. Try saying that a few times. Uh, Larry Avery from San Dimas, California. Hi, everyone. What is the most efficient and effective way to learn Adobe Premiere Pro? For the most part, I'm a still photographer, but have access to this tool and have lots of raw footage I'd like to clean up and add some polish to. Thanks. Mitchell. Mitchell, start it off. Oh, you got me on the most efficient and most effective because uh, I'm going to be judged on this, but I'll, I'll give you some suggestions that might be good and head you in the right direction. Um, there is so much uh, in Adobe, especially with Premiere. It's one of the oldest uh, editing systems uh, out there, pieces of software. I've gone from Avid. Uh, to Media 100, back to Avid, and then to Premiere Pro. Um, they've made substantial changes to it. Um, what you can find if you load it, and you've got a fairly recent version of it, is at the top of the screen, there's different modes that the screen will uh, assume, like editing mode, assembly mode. One of them is learning, and you're going to find an online tutorial that uh, provides you with uh, sample uh, footage and things like that. So you can get used to that A-B roll um, editing uh, metaphor that uh, we've grown up with the film industry for so long. And then if you go to YouTube, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of, uh, uh, you know, classes and uh, explanations of what this does and what that does. To be honest with you, when I use Adobe Premiere, um, occasionally I'll forget because I'm getting older um, about how to do something. You All you have to do is uh, type in what particular, uh, I want to do a... Uh, um, a, a, what is it? Uh, when you do the, when you take two clips and you fade them together, uh, whatever the name of that thing is, um, I'll just, uh, yeah, it's a transition, but it's a mold melding transition. But anyhow, um, it's, uh, it's easy. You just type it in, put Premiere Pro, whatever the transition is. And, uh, instantly you have somebody there that's going to explain to you how to do it. So, um, I'd say that Premiere Pro has one of the most, uh, uh, extensive background, uh, out there, especially on YouTube or on the internet, if you need it. John Preto. See this, Larry, this is a super tough question. I presume you're on creative cloud since you have access and you're a photographer, you're probably using Photoshop and illustrator. And then it seems natural to use premiere pro, but man, I was a premiere pro user for years and years and years. I got tired of it crashing during renders. And then I moved over to resolve. And so my tool of choice now for video editing is Resolve, and it's free. So I would, I would for free, go download Resolve and start kicking the tires over there as well as, as using a Premiere Pro. I still use Premiere Pro for some things I get stuck in on Resolve. I go back because I know how to do it in, in Adobe Premiere. So uh, don't leave Blackmagic Resolve out of your, your little workflow here. So, yeah, the big three Premiere Resolve. And don't forget Final Cut. Those of us who love it, love it because it's just so easy and efficient. Anyway, next question. 
Håkan Forrest from Stockholm, Sweden, asks, you have two sports commentators sitting close together with individual headsets with loud crowd noise. What is your favorite setup in terms of compressors and filters? Mickey's going to start us off. Mickey? Yeah, I would start with uh, an expander on the input and then uh, with in your effects rack, um, a popular... Um, a uh, a popular processor that people use and uh, and uh, is 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 quite um, popular as well within broadcast facilities is um, the primary source uh, expander. Um, it there is a a digital version of of it in Yamaha boards and also um, Waves has a copy of of it as well that I think they call primary source enhancer instead of expander. Um, I th- and I believe there are copies of it within uh, the La- the Lavo uh, desk as- desks as well. Marty Adius. So it's going to be highly dependent on the microphone that is being used. If you're if you have a headset that is specifically designed for sports broadcasting, the microphone will have uh, its frequency response tailored specifically for for speech in that environment and what it will do is it will it will apply a high pass uh, filter to it to cut all the low end and it will tailor the eq curve that's coming into your mixer um, for speech in that environment and then you can you'll be able to tailor from that so some some headset microphones are wideband. They're being you know intended to be used for um, speech in a in a low noise environment, and others are intended to be used in a high noise environment like this. Um, and we'll get into some of the examples that Mickey was just talking about later in the show in the second hour. Uh, but using an expander potentially with a filter in it. Uh, in the key uh, <clears throat> will will reduce the noise between words uh, and allow the EQ to take over and and highlight the certain frequencies that are specific to intelligibility in voice. Jeff and Cohen. of course, you want to be Excuse able me, to Marty. control the, the crowd noise and the shouting. And so... Um, Compression will be important to make sure that you don't overdrive your your output. There you go. Jeff Cohen? And exactly what I was going to talk about is, as we've mentioned before, first you start with the room. Okay, a stadium is less than ideal. Then you start with the mic. And um, so this one, if you, if you guys can see my screen now. Uh, the coals. Yeah, this one, uh, and I think also referred to these this category as lip microphones because that bar at the top you literally press up against your lips and if marty or anyone else maybe has some more information about exactly how it does what it does but but it's phenomenal i mean when you hear the folks talking through this i mean it practically sounds like they're in a studio and yet they're in a stadium so you start there and of course the software like we talked about before that is the last step because now we're trying to fix what didn't go right with the other stuff, the room and the mic. Jeff Francis. So the, uh, the lip mic, um, the way it works is it actually has two diaphragms 
and you're much closer to the one that is closer to your lips. And the other one is a little farther back. So your sound is quieter because of the inverse square law. Sound gets quieter as it, as it goes across distance. So the level of your talking at the close mic is much louder than your level at the farther mic at the back of that little thing that you hold up to your lips. And the two mics are wired out of polarity. So they, they subtract from each other. Now, because your voice is loud in the front mic and quiet in the, in the back mic, your voice does not get canceled, but all of the background noise is the same level in both of those mics and those get canceled. So it's a very, very simple technique that uses two microphones wired, two, two diaphragms wired reverse polarity. Haken, I hope that helps. Good advice. Uh, let's see. We, I also need to mention again, in our second hour today, we are going to be talking about audio and your questions specifically in dynamics. So there are three tags. If you have questions for the second hour, particularly for the, uh, the thing we've been talking about to describe dynamics, uh, make sure that your questions are tagged that way. We have room for a few more questions, although we have a robust group already. But make sure you get those tags on them so we know where they fit into the play of the show. Uh, let's go to the next question. And here comes one of those QR code questions from Teresa Sabin in Moorhaven. Does a gimbal or a stabilizer help reduce the weight of my iPhone 13 Pro in my hands? Marty. So while those devices float the camera <clears throat> so that they can absorb shock and movement and provide a steady picture, they don't defy gravity. Um, although, you know, it would be interesting to see somebody attach a helium balloon to one of those things to make it lighter. But um, <laughs> other than that, no. Um, the weight of the camera and the weight of the gimbal or stabilizer will all be applied to however you're supporting it, in your hand, on your body, on a stick. Um, what it does do, though, it, it provides you a more comfortable, more ergonomic way to hold that device. Uh, so instead of holding your camera like this, you're holding on to the, um, the base of the stabilizer in a more comfortable position. Um, you can brace your elbow against your body if you need to. Uh, so it sort of reduces the strain uh, that you have. But uh, no, it, it, it will not uh, reduce the weight. Mickey? Yeah, I would say, and just uh, referencing the your other question that's coming up, um, if your intention is to stabilize the um, your, your shot, having more weight there could actually help you. Um, it, it gives you more mass, meaning it's, um you there's more um there's there's a lot more substance there for you to hold steady and um and th this the same is true true with um like miniature cinema cameras like the black magic pocket cinema cameras and the the fx3s and the like um the these small light cameras um are are quite quite more uh, cumbersome to um to shoot steadily with because of their uh, size and also weight. 
So hopefully that helps, Teresa. Also, just it's one of the things I've noticed. When I discovered I was going to do more handheld work, I started uh, working out a little with dumbbells just to get my shoulders. Now, this is back in the area where cameras were pretty heavy and things like that. But I have found that just having more tone in my upper body does help me be more stable when I have to go handheld and shoot things. So it's just another possibility for you. Uh, the other thing is that the weight redistribution systems that usually have a vest or something like that. Now, these aren't usually used with phones, but you could. Moving it off of your arms entirely into something else that either has a triangular form to your chest or um, a steady cam like rig where they put a vest on and then connect the phone or whatever you're shooting with to that, that does move the weight off. And you can shoot for much longer periods of time when you're using your entire body as opposed to just your forearms to hold the camera up. So just some thoughts. Uh, let's go to the next question. Hokan Force from Stockholm, Sweden asks, what live production remote control options are there for the Sony FX6, if any? Mitch Hill. Well, first, uh, Hokan, I'd like to uh, compliment you on, uh, since I'm the Sony fanboy here, uh, compliment you on picking a great mid-range uh, Sony cinema camera. Uh, it's a great camera, and there's lots of things that you can attach to it. Um, as far as remote control, I'd have to ask more specific questions as to what type of remote control. Are you talking about uh, focusing, uh, pulling the iris, um, or anything else that has to be done with that? There are tons of hardware uh, out there that can do that, some made by Sony, some made by others. And there's also software. Um, the Sony Remote app will run uh, very well and do some of the basic stuff. But if you want to color grade uh, your camera remotely, you need a very specific device for that. Uh, best to go with uh, Sony on that. And um, I would say that uh, you're in pretty good shape with all of the various things. I'm going to also suggest uh, one other piece of software that I find very helpful with my FX3 is uh, Monitor Plus. You can see it as an app for your iPad, but it will also run on your M1 Mac if you have one. Um, it's a, a very handy little device. It gives you a remote, a remote view, and if you've got an iPad that you're walking around with and your DP is uh, running the camera uh, as a producer or director, you've got a chance to see what's on the camera and also make some adjustments if you need to. Next question. Next one uh, coming in from Teresa Sabin in Moorhaven. My uh, intention is to go record a stable-looking video on the go while not breaking the bank. Which do you prefer, a gimbal or a stabilizer? Please explain the differences and the different occasions you might prefer one over the other. Thanks. Mickey's going to take a run at this. Mickey? Um, my, my suggestion is if uh, you're just getting into video is to um, teach yourself and train yourself to be able to capture the most stable um, footage you can just with your hands without relying on any gimbals or stab stabilization platforms. Uh, learn the learn the muscle memory and the techniques needed to to capture a a um, steady video just on your own. Oh, that's good advice. And in fact, when I was learning to move from shoulder-mounted cameras to regular phone, uh, regular phone cameras and things like that, the smaller ones, I started figuring out some things to do. One of them is that rather than holding it out front, I would keep my elbows on my body so that I had one point of kind of contact. I would also figure out where my hand should be around the actual camera for two reasons. If I held it with my second finger and my thumb, I had my first finger to operate some of the controls. So, you know, practice, learn these kind of things. Also, I would figure out that in some certain circumstances, 
if I can figure out how to add um, a little rigidity. Like maybe if I really had trouble and I was on something moving, I would bring it up next to my face for just a short period of time to try to help get a third position of stability so that I was not out here with my hands being moved around. Just try things. You know, one of the smartest things I ever did on my phone when I started to shoot a lot, particularly when I was learning to capture things that were breaking and happening fast, was to get used to where's my phone in my pocket? How do I pull it out? What are the two or three things I have to hit really quickly to hit record to get going? And I would drill on that until I got really quick at it. And I can't tell you the number of shots where I said, I want to shoot that. And I was so good at pulling it out and within maybe two or three seconds actually starting to film that I caught a lot more shots that I was missing before. So the more time you spend rehearsing with your tools, I think the better your results are going to be. Hopefully that helps. Good questions. Let's go on to the next one. QR code question from Brett Below from Appleton, Wisconsin. The DJI RS3 and 3 Pro gimbal stabilizers were released in June of 2022. Does the panel have any guesses on when the next version will be unveiled? What features or changes would you like to see on the new model? I don't think there's anybody on the panel who has any idea. You know, it's pre-release things, unless there's officially some sort of... uh, uh, roadmap to what they're going to release when most of these companies don't do it. They're publicly held in a lot of cases, although DJI is out of uh, the Pacific Rim, and I don't know what their corporate <laughs> circumstances are. Um, but generally, uh, we any guesses we would have would be pure speculation. Uh, definitely, if you hear the rumor, it'll hit you through one of your social feeds probably that there's a new one about to be released. Uh, come back here because almost all the new technology that is pretty significant we discuss on the day it's released here. Even if we haven't had it in our hands, you can get some informed speculation by our panels of experts. So thanks for asking. Let's go to the next question. Junior Grant from New York City with a question. Good day, Office Hours. Is any of the panelists familiar with the Tascam Series 208i preamps and its overall value as an audio interface for a home studio? And Pierce, Jeff Francis has some information. Jeff. And I'm not familiar with this particular Tascam device, but I have used uh, the Tascam DM4800 and one of their portable recorders. Um, so the DM4800 is a is an early digital mixer. At, at this point, it's probably 15 plus years old, and it's still running in one of our studios at the university. Uh, the preamps on there, you know, it's a 24-channel uh, it's a 64-channel console, but 24 preamps, and the whole console I think was was you know six thousand dollars. So if you think about the amount of money that was spent on each of those preamps, uh, is it's very little per channel. Uh, so probably the money that Tascam put into it is probably you know less than less than three dollars in components per preamp, and they are fairly clean and they are fairly uh, neutral sounding preamps. So they they don't really convey their own color on them onto the sound they do get noisy at the extremes so pretty much trying you you couldn't run a sure sm uh 7b without a cloud lifter on it you know you would not get enough gain out of those particular ones this uh preamp uh this Tascam interface seems to have uh, a little more gain than that this one looks to have like i think 64 db of gain as near as i could tell uh, one of the things that I really liked about this interface is that if you look at the back, and let's see if I can zoom in there, uh, this is 
four mic preamps, but then as you zoom in, you see that it has uh, additional digital inputs in the form of ADAT light pipe, which can be 16 channels or it could be eight channels at 96 kilohertz. And something that you don't often see on smaller things is you actually have word clock. So word clock would allow you to synchronize additional devices. So this could expand with two additional eight-channel mic preamps that you would feed uh, word clock into. This could expand into a 20-input interface, which is how they advertise it as a 20-input interface. So this could definitely grow with your home studio. Uh, $500 is a lot uh, for a sort of basic four input interface, you could get a focus right for less than that. But if you want to grow this, this would not be a bad option. And, uh, I would, I would put the Tascam preamps alongside, you know, the focus, right, Scarlet and those categories of preamps. Thank you for the question, Junior. Let's go to our next question. Hokan Forrest from Stockholm, Sweden asks, any recommendations on budget-friendly mic preamps for two to four channels to bring two to four mics to line level for an NDI or Dante audio interface? Uh, Mickey's going to help us out here. Mickey? Yeah. Um, there there are a couple um, preamps, say, from Universal Audio and uh, from API. The, I, be, I believe the Universal Audio uh, 4710 has uh, has uh, four preamps there. These are studio quality preamps. And the four, the 4710 has... Um, has built-in A to D converters as well. If you want to use those, um, uh, another option if uh, if you're on a budget, may perhaps look for uh, secondhand sound devices, four four two or five five two. Those uh, field mixers have direct outs, and they have you know the sound devices quality preamps that we're accustomed to. Actually, in my opinion, much much better than you would find on the on the mix pre series or or even the current eight series. I I love the preamps on the four four two. Um, there's also, um, the, the RME, um, I think they call it the quad or yeah, the quad mic. Um, again, great preamps on those. If ever you, you, you mentioned you wanted separate, the preamps, uh, preamps that are separate from the Dante interface. But if you want something that's all in one, um, RedNet has, um, some preamps that are Dante capable. Um, RND also has, um, uh, the D8, which is uh, an eight channel um, remotely controllable preamp that's, uh, that's, uh, has a built-in Dante interface as well. Okay. Um, let's see. Maybe, well, I think I, I thought Jeff was going to weigh in on that, but it must not have been. So I'll uh, just let you know that we are about to make our transition into the second hour here. A uh, couple of notes for the show between now and then. Don't forget, uh, tomorrow, uh, let's see. Oh, no, second hour intro. That's right. Squares TV Application Lab is with Michael Forrest right after this show, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, that's part of our regular thing, and he's going to be talking about learning how to integrate uh, Shoot Pro webcam, video pencil, and or beat sheet into uh, your workflow from Squares TV. TV. The Isadora Lab with L. Wilson Spiro is also happening uh, tomorrow at 11 a.m. So that's Thursday. Uh, 
Thursday's show is about EVS playback and recording workflows. This has been a great series that we've had. We've got some really fabulous broadcast-oriented folks, and Robert Green is going to be here this week as an EVS operator, tape operation and video editor, working in broadcast cable television for almost three decades. He's going to dive into the various modern EVS playback and recording workflows, as well as a progression. He'll talk about the progression from tape to server-based playback systems. So if you're interested in how the big boys, like NFL teams and things like that, uh, do this stuff, tomorrow's or tomorrow's your day. Friday, a behind-the-scenes review of the Office Hours virtual studio. This is going to be exciting. We're ready once again to kind of lift the curtain on how Office Hours gets produced. So if you wonder how we create this show every single day, it should be fascinating. I know that it's one of the most popular things we do. Uh, a lot of people understand that this is an incredible heavy lift. What you're watching right now is the result of literally dozens upon dozens of people working behind the scenes quietly, some on the show, some in the back uh, back of the show, back of the house, so to speak, but others who literally work quietly to bring all the attributes of this show together so that we can put out something that looks as close to broadcast television as you get. So that's that's the discussion for tomorrow. That brings us up to the top of the hour in our transition. We'll be back in just a second. Welcome back to Office Hours, our second hour, and we are looking forward to today because we are talking dynamics. Specifically, as most of you know, Wednesday is kind of our audio-centric today, and today we want you to get your headphones ready because uh, our audio experts, including Marty, Jeff, uh, uh, Andy and others who are appearing on the panel today are going to be taking you on an appreciation tour of dynamics, what it means. And we're doing it a little bit unusually today. We're going to kind of do a, rever a reverse Q&A. If you're uh, using the Mukana system, you will have seen a third tag up there. Dynamics Basics is one of the tags. Describe Dynamics is another one of the tags. And for Describe Dynamics, what we want you to do is a very short post in there for what your description of dynamics is. I think we want to compare and get your ideas. Uh, 15 words or less, how would you describe dynamics? And how do you plan for dynamics when you mix things? That intro taken care of, I'm going to turn first, I think, to Marty Adius and let you kind of uh, set the scene for today. Marty, what are we going to be doing? Well, thank you, Bill. I've been looking forward to this one because dynamics has... <laughs> such a wide range of applications and definitions, and it's often a very misunderstood aspect of audio production. Um, and so I'm going to kick it off by, by reading some of the answers to those questions, um, just to get us started here, because I, I wanted to hear from, from our producers um, what their perspective is on dynamics. And so um, I'm not going to read any names. I'm just going to read the answers. And the first one is the variance in loudness between the highest and lowest levels of a full performance. And that is the textbook definition of dynamics. Uh, thank you for that one. Uh, the next one is my style was to run faders and learn <clears throat> the performance to anticipate the range. Uh, I was not a fan of compression, and the recordings often had a protective limiter. I did mostly live mixes for television. Very good. That, that is certainly is um, uh, important 
to know your um, your audience and your medium and the content in order to do uh, to determine um, what kind of dynamics to allow in the performance. The next one is multi-band compression is when you separate the bands into individual ranges for processing. Helpful for situations where heavy bass is busting holes in the high and mid-range. And yes, that's that's actually very true. Uh, there are different types of compression that we're going to get into. And um, that is an interesting answer because <clears throat> there are a few future shows that we have planned here for Audio Wednesday, um, including on January 10th, we're going to do an episode on multiband processing in particular. And earlier than that, on December 20th, we're going to be doing an episode on audio scopes. And so there will be some metering that will show us um, what kind of dynamics we are using or, or including in the, in the program. And on, 12, uh, on December 13th, we're going to do an X32 lab, in which case we're going to look at some of the controls in a little bit more depth than we're going to do today um, to see how to control dynamics. So um, uh, another answer was ever-changing. And yes, that, that is kind of the nature of dynamics. It's a very it's a very dynamic thing. Audio is because I can, you know, move around from here to there and get further away from the microphone and get closer to the microphone. And I can talk by modulating my voice level. So having uh, read some of those, and we'll get back to some of those uh, a little bit later. Um, so I was asked by, by some people, we, we were having a discussion in after hours, to um, first, first describe what, what dynamics is not, okay? It can be to dispel some, some misinformation or some misunderstandings. So the first thing is <clears throat> improper interfacing between devices. So if you have a line level output from one device and you're going into the next device into a mic level input and you find that you're running your fader or volume control very, very low in its travel, in its range, where a very, very small, like one millimeter adjustment could produce a six to 10 dB change in output, <clears throat> that's not dynamics, that's, that's improper interfacing. Uh, another one is improper gain structure. Uh, which is related to what I just talked about. But if you have, um, uh, if you find that you're running your channel faders or your output faders very high in its travel or very low in its travel, uh, you're going to find that very, very small adjustments make a huge difference in the output. And you'll also find that um, changes in volume level could have um, outsized effects. So that's gain structure. That's not it may affect the dynamics of the program, but it, dynamics processing is not going to fix that. So what is dynamics? What does it relate to? So yes, the textbook definition is the difference in the maximum versus minimum volume in your program. Um, <clears throat> this also relates to the signal to noise ratio of the medium that, you're, that the audience is listening to. So in electronic transmission, such as television, webcasting, there's a fairly wide dynamic range because it has a very low noise floor, um, such as we have here in office hours. 
when we are in a room with a PA system, it, it will relate to um, the room noise level uh, because the, the minimum dynamic range is related to what is the noise floor in the room, right? And for intelligibility purposes, you want the minimum volume of your speech to be 10 dB over the room noise in order for speech to be intelligible. Also relates to the reverberation uh, time in the room, the decay time in the room. If there's a very reverberant space, that effectively raises the noise floor of the room and will definitely affect intelligibility unless you can find a way to get your signal above the noise floor. Nice. Um, dynamics well, also relates to the spaces in between the words and the notes of music, um, which is relate also related to noise floor, but you know, in between the notes, if you have a lot of space there, you hear more of the room tone, and um, that's part of dynamics. The file format that you're using, the bit depth of your file, will also affect what your total dynamic range will be. And your preamps will have a lot of effect on what your dynamic range will be. So all of this goes towards affecting the intelligibility of speech and the, um, uh, the tone and uh, uh, quality of, of music and the articulation of music, uh, the texture of the sounds, the consistency of the volume level and um and you know here's here's an analogy in video we say that light level contrast equals interest right the parallel in audio would be dynamics and with that i'm going to turn this over to um, andy to talk about some of the tools that we have uh, in our arsenal for for controlling dynamics and determining what they are. Before and just that, before Andy steps in, hang on just a second, Andy. I just want to let you know, uh, uh, all of you watching, we have an unbelievable panel of experts here. Uh, I, I was just looking at the panel, and I'm just kind of agog. So anybody on the panel who wants to weigh in, raise your hands in there. Andy is uh, in that. So I'm, I'm, Andy, you can take it away from now. We'll come back to Mitch, and then anybody on the panel who has comments, uh, raise your hand so I can know that you're in line for it. Andy, take it away. Actually, Mitchell, you want to go first because your hand was up first. Um, it might be a good one to follow you, but I'll just uh, mention it. Uh, I think there's also, you know, dynamics are certainly important, but what you use to tame the dyna dynamics or deal with them uh, is another. And it's interesting because I come from a broadcast background that the things that I would use to affect dynamics in radio would be totally different than what you would use uh, in a uh, recording studio for a musician or a vocal booth for a voiceover guy. Um, in radio, unfortunately, radio has made a bad name for itself. The only dynamic range in radio right now is about 3 dB because they're so loud. Uh, they're fighting the loudness wars, and I, I really am totally against that. But that also leaked into uh, the, how the way the record companies are mastering their songs. But I think I just want to point out that there are different applications for dealing with dynamics, and radio happens to be one of them. There you go. Uh, Andy? Yeah, and uh, just to add uh, to what Marty was just saying earlier about the context of why we use dynamics, there's one other thing, and he touched on this a little bit, but um, there are artistic reasons 
and creative reasons for also using dynamics. Um, for example, you can bring out the breathiness of a voice with the proper use of dynamics. We hear that all the time in pop music, for example, or in very intimate um, Billie Eilish, you know, when she's really uh, 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 singing very softly. There's a lot going on there uh, with dynamics in order to bring that out. Um, Marty's going to play something later on that will actually highlight some of this, too. So um, just keep that in the back of your mind. Uh, it's not all technical. <laughs> So, uh, so the thing I'm going to get into uh, here is just very, a very brief uh, list of what kinds of dynamic processors are there. And uh, this, by the way, goes back to the analog days, and we have the analog equivalents in digital consoles today. Uh, the one that probably everybody is most familiar with is a compressor. And then you also hear compressor limiter in the same breath often. A limiter is something, it's very similar to a compressor, but it is used for different purposes generally. Um, a uh, a deesser is a type of dynamics processor. Uh, we're not going to get into the details of all these things today. That'll probably be in a later show. But um, let me just focus on the other ones. Uh, an automatic gain control circuit, AGC, which is sometimes a button on a mixer or whatever, that's a type of dynamics processor. It's bringing up the low-level stuff and squashing down the high-level stuff and trying to keep your level within a good range. That's a type of dynamics processor. Um, arguably, an auto mixer, like the Dugan or the one that's on a Behringer X32 or some of the other Behringer products, is a dynamics processor, although it is doing things with level only, really. And, uh, but it is sometimes using a type of gating circuit or... To, to achieve this. So we might throw that also in there. There are a few others that are less common, uh, but uh, those are the big ones. Um, we're going to get in, in a moment, we're going to get into uh, just showing basic setup for a compressor, a good starting place for a compressor, and how to achieve that. Uh, before we get into that, uh, I'm going to hand it over to, to Jeff Francis, who's just going to talk about all the parameters of a compressor. Take it away, Jeff. So to categorize, uh, I think about uh, audio effects uh, as changing various things. So if we think about faders, mic preamp gains, all of that stuff, that just changes level, and it changes level uh, independent of the sound that's going through it. If you turn the fader up plus 10 dB, everything gets 10 dB louder. Uh, then you get equalizers, which are frequency-dependent levels. So we're going to boost the high frequencies, reduce the, the low frequencies. A dynamics processor is a level-dependent level change. So it looks at the level of the sound going through it, and it makes adjustments based on the level. We split compressors, limiters, expanders, gates in half. There's the things that make less dynamic range, less contrast between the louds and the softs. Those are compressors and limiters. So they compress the dynamic range or they limit the dynamic range. And then there's the other half, which are expanders and gates. Expanders and gates make the dynamic range, the difference between louds and softs, greater. How do these work? They all work by turning something down. Compressors turn down louds and expanders turn down quiets. So in an expander, the loud stuff stays the same the medium stuff stays the same, and the quiet stuff gets quieter. In a compressor, the 
quiet stuff stays the same, the medium stuff stays the same, and the loud stuff gets quieter. Well, the first thing about this as a control, there's four basic controls, which are threshold ratio and then the attack times of attack and release, or the timing of attack and release. The threshold is simply a level decision. It's the choice where the compressor begins to work. So when we talk about compressing and limiting, if the sound level coming through the compressor is below, is quieter than the threshold, nothing happens. It doesn't get changed. But if it gets above the threshold, then we begin to affect some gain reduction. So that you'll commonly see uh, this gain transfer curve. So this is showing a very simple uh, compressor here. And the dashed line that goes from the bottom left to the top right is a one-to-one. -one, whatever comes in goes out. No change. That's unity gain. That's absolutely no change to the audio. And you see that everything quiet on the low side of this is coming through unchanged. And then once you get to that point where the graph turns, that's the threshold and the stuff above that gets quieter. Well, how much quieter is a thing that is uh, the ratio? So there you see a couple of different ratios. So you see a different tilt to that. And so if you kind of imagine, um, you know, if you're, 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 you've got a rubber band and you're stretching it at some point, the rubber band is loose and it doesn't uh, it doesn't resist you at all. And then when you get up to the threshold, it begins to resist. And the harder you pull, the more resistance is. If you have a tighter rubber band, you have a higher compression ratio. Um, and then there's also how fast does the device actually apply the amount of gain reduction? So you can think of this as an automated fader. There's a little, there's a little, uh, a little mouse in there inside the box who's got his hand on the fader. He's listening to your music, and and when it gets loud, he pulls the fader down, and when it gets quiet again, he pushes back up. Well, how fast does that mouse react? I know it should be AI now, but I like to imagine a mouse inside my, <laughs> inside my compressor with his hand on the fader, uh, much faster than I ever could. Um, and then if you get into, let me go back a slide here or two, if I can, um, when we get into the compression ratio, you can see that sometimes the, there it is, um, we get a thing called knee. So the red graph goes straight up as a one-to-one -one and then immediately flips over to, to the uh, compression ratio. And then the soft knee shows you a curve, which means instead of going directly from a one-to-one -to, -one to a four-to-one or one-to-one to ten-to-one, -one, it goes one-to-one to two-to-one to three-to-one to four-to-one, three four so it gradually goes into that. Nice. Um, are we coming back, Andy? Are you uh, grabbing it here, or are we going somewhere else? Oops, I'm not hearing you. You must still be muted. I see that you've got Something there we go. up Sorry that you're feeding. That. There you go. No problem. Yeah. So you can you can you guys see my screen? I can. Yes. Great. Okay. So yeah, we're gonna here. Let me just actually get my mic to stay on here. Give me one second. Sorry about this. And it'll probably be easy for me, guys. If anybody wants to weigh in on any of these, just raise a hand here, and I'll make sure I get to you. Sorry about that. Uh, my. I couldn't unmute un properly. So give me one second here and I'll get this set up. This sure, absolutely. This will just take a second. 
And for those of you who are in the question system in Mukana or something like that, again, you have access to an astonishing array of decades, uh, maybe way more than decades of audio experience here on the panel today. So if there's anything that's been bugging you about this topic, or we'll sneak in, if the, if it's really critical, we'll sneak in something else. We'd like to keep as, mo- as much as we can to the topics of dynamics processing. But uh, if you have other questions, toss them in. We'll see what happens. And then... It, we just want to make sure that we don't waste. I will, I will this say, Bill, while, while we're waiting for Andy to get set Where up. Um, so learning, learning faders and and microprogram gains. You have one control, and it affects one thing. Then you move to equalizers, and you now have generally three controls: center frequency, bandwidth, and booster cut. But those three controls essentially work independently from each other. So if I set an EQ with a plus, plus 60 dB boost at 2 kilohertz and I move it to 1 kilohertz, I can hear that change. And that's the only thing that's been affected is now I'm boosting frequencies at a, at a, you know, boosting at a different frequency. Um, the four main parameters of a dynamics processor, which is the threshold, the point, the level at which it decides to make changes, the ratio, which is how strong of a change that is. The attack time, how fast does it initiate that attenuation change, that gain reduction. And the release, which is the timing of once the signal falls back below the threshold, how quickly does it return back to unity gain to no change. All four of those interact with each other quite dramatically. That if the if the attack time is really long, a, a loud transient, a very short, loud sound, like hitting a snare drum, can come through the compressor before the compressor has any chance, because it has a slow attack time, before it has any chance to actually reduce the gain. So a missetting of one of those four parameters doesn't allow you to set the other ones or hear even the effects of the other ones. So learning dynamics processors is is exponentially more complex than learning equalization because the controls interact with each other. And I've only talked about the four primary controls. We'll get into a couple other ones like knee. And then when we talk about um, expanders and gates, sometimes we we allow them to stay to stay in their, their open position. So there's an additional hold time. And then at the end of it all, we have, since we're doing attenuation, we usually want to turn things up. So there is a makeup gain at the end of these things. Is it fair um, to I say that you, the more... Oh, go ahead. Continue. I will say that the most important thing that we always look at when working with dynamics processors is an additional meter, and that meter is the uh, gain reduction meter. It shows us how much attenuation is taking place at any given time. And by observing that, we can see how much compre- how much dynamics processing is taking place. Speaking of is which. it fair to say that the more uh, experience you get, the more control you want to have? I, I always think of things like AGC you mentioned before, or Andy mentioned. You know, to me, that is like, I want to stay away from it because I first encountered it on small devices. And if you top punched in AGC, the background went nuts when people stopped talking and things like that. I didn't want it automated. I wanted to control it. Is it fair to say that the more advanced you get, the more granular control you want to have? Yes, and I think also the more you begin to hear compression, the less you use it. Ah, uh, you get a- much more subtle with its use um, because you begin to hear how it really can and uh, suck the life out of out of performances. 
at first um, it just said, oh, it's forward, and I can hear that now, and I love it, and I'm going to turn it up. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I put a heavy compression or heavy limiting, and we've, we've mentioned, we haven't really gone into it, but we've mentioned the loudness wars. It, it's like the old thing of typing in all caps. You know, if you're shouting there on the go. internet, if everything is loud, then there's no dynamic so. contrast, and we've lost the beauty of music. We've lost the cadence of speech. You know, we need silence. We need some yeah. breath. We need a, a, a place to, to breathe in between. And I think Andy's ready now. Andy, is your demo ready? I, I'm ready uh, as long as you can see my shared screen. Can you switch? It's to... on one. There, of my, there it is. Go. Now I see it in the panel. All right. Yeah. Yes. Good. So great. So what we're looking at here is a Yamaha QL1. I'm actually using the iPad software just because the graphics on it are better. It'll be easier for everybody to see what's going on here. And um, you see actually literally my mic, I have a lav mic on right now. That's why it sounds like I might be a little thin. But um, that's, on the, that's on the channel one there. And on channel two, we have tone. We are going to use tone as a tool today to look at compression. And we'll also listen to a mic as well. Uh, but tone is a great tool. I used to use it all the time before digital consoles when we had knobs on compressors and things to make adjustments before I actually even turned a mic on. So we're actually going to do that right now. So uh, I'm going to turn this tone on. And you might hear it a little bit in the background. That's on purpose because I don't want to kill everybody with the level. I'm going to adjust this level a little bit. I'm going to bring it up about 10 dB here. So uh, actually, if you notice, that tone level is pretty close to the, my mic's gain level. By the way, this is the input gain I just adjusted. It's just on faders instead of knobs. Um, so, so believe me when I say these two levels, the mic and the tone, are pretty close together right at the moment. Mic looks like it's a little hotter, but not a big deal right now. And, and right. Andy, I just want to jump in here a second and, and just ask if you have... Um, is original sound for you on? Oh, let me double check. Are you hearing the tone? Because it should have stayed on. Yeah, I can hear it. Yeah, a little bit. But to get the nuances, I think. Yeah, no, I actually that. turned on original sound when I was doing my testing. As long as when they moved me into this room, I, I don't even know how to look at that at the moment. I don't think I can look at it while I'm in a shared screen. Or can I? I don't know. Let me see. Hold on one second. It's under the view options menu. Yeah, I'm looking here. Where is it? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's on. You wouldn't hear the tone. You'd hear the tone cutting in and out. If you're not hearing the tone cutting in and out, it's still on. It's not. It's constant. Good. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume it's on because I can't find it. All right. So moving on, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the dynamics on this tone channel. So what I need to do is actually get to that view. Sorry. That's not the right view. Hold on one second here. There we go. Okay, so here's tone. You can see that this is the label, the channel label down here in tone. What we're looking at here on the left side is the gate. We're not using the gate. We're going to use the right side of the screen, the compressor. And right now it's not on. So let's turn on the dynamics channel, this, this dynamics processor in here. And let's, let's look at this for a second because uh, Jeff was just describing all these parameters. So uh, the first thing to notice is there's an in and an out meter. This in meter is literally the gain of this channel. It's I, the, I just adjusted the gain on the tone. That's that right there. Um, 
that's what's feeding into the compressor. The out is what's coming out of the compressor. Um, and and if you, you have to think of this thing as being inserted in the path of this channel, okay? So uh, right now, this compressor is doing absolutely nothing. It, whatever we're feeding in is coming out, same level. You can see it right there. Um, it's very important to note at this point that gain structure has a big effect on your compressor. When you're setting up a compressor, do the gain first. Get your channel where you want it to sit. On this console, the Behringer's as well, it's typically around minus 18 dB full scale. That's where, the, and in, incidentally, that's where this transitions from a green to a yellow light. That's a good place for your microphone level. In this case, we're using tone. Okay, so all I'm going to do is some. Actually, Jeff referred to this earlier. When you get uh, when you start using uh, compression more, you tend to use it more subtly. So we're going to do some subtle compression on this channel. I'm going to do a little four to one. Actually, I can't. Do, there we go. So I'm going to bring the ratio down to four to one. And by the way, there's the ratio, threshold, attack, release. Output gain, also known as makeup gain. Here's knee. He referred to some of these earlier. So I just brought the ratio down to four to one. Nothing happened. So nothing happened because our threshold is still up at zero. So I'm going to gradually bring this threshold down, and you will see this red meter down here increase, and that's when we're going to start to see some gain reduction. So I'll bring that down. I like to do for microphones. Just like get three or four of these little LED lights to light up. So right now we're right about, I'll go a little there. There we go. Uh, so now we got a little bit of gain reduction here. And you will see that reflected in the output meter. The output meter went down a few dB. Um, if I go down even more in the threshold, it'll, I can even get this gain to completely, almost completely go away. It's, it's still there, but it's very faint. So let's put it back where it was. Okay, that's a good starting point. So now, now I've got this going on. Now I, do, I could leave it there and I'd have a compression setting. Now, for me, what I want to do is I want to bring the output gain back up to where it was because I have lost some dBs. Uh, so the compressor is taking off the attack of this. I'm going to bring up this output gain, otherwise known as makeup gain, which is, I think, a better word for it. So we're going to bring that up. So now I'm compressing. I am. And you don't hear it because it's tone, by the way. But I have now achieved some compression without changing my overall level. Now, let's apply this to a microphone, and then you'll see what's going on. So I'm literally going to copy these settings. I just copied them. And I'm going to turn off our tone so we don't have to hear that. And I'm going to switch over to our lav channel. So there's our lav channel. This is my microphone that I'm talking into right now. The dynamics is off. I'll just turn it on. It doesn't really matter. I'm going to paste these into this channel. And I'm going to do it. And as I do it, I'm going to talk. And you might hear a little difference. So here we go. I'm going to just keep talking. One, two, three, four. And now I just pasted them in. You might have heard a little change. Um, I, I mean, what I hear is I hear a little bit of the noise floor going up. That makes perfect sense because I'm adding about 4.5 dB a gain here. Um, I also might make some further adjustments because the voice and tone are a little different. So it looks like I'm 
I'm squishing this a little bit more than I want. I want my two or three lights, maybe my four lights to light up, so I'll back off the threshold a little bit. The output makeup gain might need to be adjusted just a smidge, not too much. Uh, there, that's a good starting point. And if I really lean into this, it'll catch my peaks. If I want to smash this more, here, I'll bring the threshold down. I can really make myself kind of go away there a lot. Uh, I've, yeah, there you go. So that's, that is compression 101 in a nutshell. Cool. Marty, did you want to weigh in? Yeah. So, yes, that's, um, that's a really good demonstration of how compression works on a basic level and uh, what its effect was. So what I was hearing, Andy, um, when you applied the compression to your microphone is that at the peak volume of your voice uh, modulation, those words that were in the, in the parts of words that were particularly accentuated, I was hearing them being reduced, actively reduced, sort of like ducking almost. Um, and that, when you hear that kind of effect, that is kind of undesirable, which is why you lightened up on the threshold and sounded much more natural. At the same time, it was controlling the peaks of your voice so that it didn't overmodulate. It also had the effect of um, bringing up slightly because of the makeup gain, bringing up the lowest parts of your of your vocal speech, um, where you might relax your voice a little bit. It brought them up, and so um, the range of volume in your voice was actually narrowed, and that makes it more consistent you know, to the uh, receivers, to the to the audience, and makes it uh, a little bit more intelligible. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if I could add one thing, too, is that, sure, um, you know, a lot of people, I, I see this all the time, we all see this all the time, people have got their nice big Shure SM7s, you know, and they get that big radio sound when they're doing podcasts, or they're doing Zoom calls and things like that, and things are just, I, I hear a lot of uh, over-compression. And the reason to use light compression is you will maintain your, I think, you will maintain your audience's interest. If the dynamic level is just doing this a little bit, your dynamic range is just in a very narrow area, everything can start to sound the equivalent of monotone. Whereas if, there is, if you don't overdo the compression and you do leave some, a, a bigger dynamic range, there's more um, range in that. The, the soft, when I'm talking softly, and when I'm talking loudly, um, the, your, your listener will hear that and, you know, um, uh, psychoacoustically, and I think it maintains more interest, and you, you get less hearing fatigue from your listener. Yeah, it's one thing to have compression on a 30-second spot. It's going to come and go. It's another thing to have it on a two-hour program where you're just constantly at the same level. Exactly. Um, Jeff, did you have a, a comment before we get to our questions? We've got a good group of questions coming up. Jeff? Yeah, I do. I'm going to show kind of like a basic overview, another look at it. So here's here's just an audio waveform. Um, and I've, I've circled there where you can see. So we have this. This is positive and negative, you know, audio waveform. Um, and you can see the threshold there as the red dashed line. 
um, and you see some things go above it, and those are the things that are going to be affected. Um, also pay attention to where sort of quiet audio is, because uh, we're going to see that change as we go. So then once compression happens, those peaks get turned down. So you see that most of the stuff above the threshold has been reduced, but that so that's been reduced, but this quiet stuff is still in the same place. And then the next thing that usually happens is makeup gain. So as Andy did in his demo, we turn this entire signal up. And so now the entire signal comes up. And so the peaks have moved up to that peak, but now the quieter stuff has gotten louder. So people think of uh, compression as making quiet sounds louder. What we're really doing is making loud stuff quieter and then turning everything up. What we're doing overall is reducing the the peak to average difference. So our louds are not so much louder than our quiets. Nice. Uh, Marty, you want to come? Before we get to questions, is um, uh, we talk about compressor as a dynamics, as a way to control dynamics, but expanders are an equally important tool to use. And I want to demonstrate that here um, by going, I'm going to demonstrate using the microphone I have right now. And um, I'm, I'm actually in a fairly noisy environment. I have several uh, PCs around me. One of them is kind of noisy because the liquid CPU cooler is failing. And so it rattles a little bit. Um, but when I stop talking, you don't hear it. Now I'm going to turn original sound on so that you can hear this a little bit more. And what you're looking at is my noise gate or my expander, the expander that I'm applying on my microphone channel. And what it's doing is it's, it's actually quieting the environment um, between my speech and words and phrases. So I, if I turn this off right now, you can hear the noise floor in my room pretty well, right? When I turn it on, you see right here um, that, can you see my cursor, by the way? Yes. Okay, so you can see the noise reduction meter uh, working between my phrases. And you can see that when it's quieting down. Now, um, interestingly enough, when we apply, if I were to apply compression to this, as well as makeup gain, this is going to actually bring up the noise floor. So let me do that. And so you can see here, this now the red bar is gain reduction that's being applied by the compressor. And you can hear the noise floor came way up because of the makeup gain. And so these two processors play off of each other, and you've got to be careful sometimes how you use them. And we will apply this um, in live situations, like I will go into uh, to do an event where I may have several people on stage sitting in comfy chairs, each wearing a lavalier microphone, and the air conditioning noise in the room is quite high, right? And so... I need to apply compressors, I'm sorry, expanders to reduce the noise that the microphones are picking up when people are actually not speaking. 
Nice. We do have a group of questions that are coming in, so let me just double check. And piece. Oh, I'm sorry, Mickey wanted to get on this before we go to questions. Mickey. Yeah, I just wanted to um, perhaps show as well a uh, visual representation of what happens uh, to a waveform that, that's being compressed. So uh, I have a, a simple recording here, and I'm, this is just Pro Tools. I'm zooming on the waveform here. So let me play back a raw recording for you. This is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. So that is the raw recording. Um, what I have here are uh, two channels that have been, uh, two copies of, of the same thing that have been compressed differently. This one being compressed uh, fairly lightly. Let me zoom in on this, uh, on this uh, um, compressor here. So this is the sound of this uh, same same recording, but compressed fairly lightly, just a one, 1. 1.5 ratio on it. This is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. This is, this is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. While this one is, uh, again, the same recording, but compressed fairly heavily. And uh, what we see here is uh, the amount of gain reduction that's happening on, on the channel. This is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. This, this is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. So you can see from the waveforms here, this is the raw one. This one compressed lightly, and this one compressed very heavily. You can see the compressor acting on it and reducing the levels of the higher um, of, of the louder uh, portions of the recording. Now let me zoom in on, uh, I have the same tracks here with the, um, with the uh, compressor printed on it, but uh, leveled out to the same loudness so that we're, uh, our perceived uh, um, loudness of, of how we're hearing them is the same. And we can, we can take a look at, say, compare the raw. This is the same... Uh, the same portion here between the three versions. Let me highlight all of them. And we can see the on the heavily compressed one, this quiet portion is now significantly louder compared to the same section in the raw. And this is, I believe, an S or an X. Alex Lindsay. So that's it. That's the uh, him saying the X and Alex Lindsay. So let me play the raw the lightly compressed and the heavily compressed one um, leveled out to the same loudness one after the other. This is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. And this is the lightly compressed? This is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. And this is the heavily compressed. This is Alex Lindsay, and this is the Office Hours 5.1 channel ID. So you can, uh, you can hear there uh, different... Uh, different amounts of compression, zero compression, light compression, and also very heavy compression. Nice, nice demo. It, it was clear I'm wearing headphones and it was the difference in the tonality of them. And I can see why that for a brief period of time, none of them would bother me. And in fact, the heavily compressed one might kind of be a little more in my face, but over the course of a long program or something like that, over compression would probably end up being fatiguing and it would just kind of make me think, you know, is there something else I should be doing now? Because I'm tired of this in-my-face sound for, for long periods of time. Let's dive into our questions. We've only got about 15 minutes left of the show. So 
Mitch, what do we got? First in, Danny Grizzle from Longview, Texas. How should the approach to dynamics and sound reinforcement, live sound, differ from dynamics and recording media creation? Marty's going to help us out. Marty? Absolutely. So depending on your environment and the type of program and the place you're in and whether you're uh, in a live environment with an active PA system or you're electronic for uh, webcasting or recording, each of these have different uh, dynamic range capabilities and limitations and uh, things that will affect them. So in a live PA situation where you have active speakers, you have room noise, you have um, maximum volume level, you have feedback, uh, you have uh, leakage from one microphone to another microphone. All of these things will affect how you apply dynamics processing and what your goal is for those dynamics processing. If you are uh, completely electronic and you're in a quiet environment like a recording studio or at a good desktop or in a studio, uh, a television studio, then you have a wider dynamic range for your environment for your microphones to pick up. And you also need to think about um, what your trans- what your storage medium is, what your transmission medium is. As we talked about earlier, if you're in uh, doing AM or FM radio, that transmission channel is inherently quite noisy. And so you want to be uh, well above the noise floor. And also in AM and FM radio, the, um, the level that you're putting out will affect how far your signal will travel um, in terms of range. Uh, <clears throat> If you are uh, doing television or cable television, then your dynamic range is wider in that transmission channel. If you are recording classical or jazz music or or, or uh, performing live, classical and jazz music inherently has a very wide dynamic range. If you have an orchestra on stage, you might have one piccolo that is playing a part of a song. Uh, and then I'm thinking of like the 1812 Overture, right? There'd be one piccolo just playing solo. And then you get the full orchestra with uh, timpani drums and cannon, live cannon shots. And the volume range there is is absolutely incredibly wide. Um, rock and blues music has a narrower dynamic range. It's typically compressed fairly well. Uh, and then webcasting depends on the platform. Uh, every webcast, YouTube, Spotify, they all have their own specifications and, and dynamics. Let's move through. Uh, we've got three more people on this, and we've now questions are pouring in, as I suspected. So many people are interested in audio. Andy, take on the next piece. Uh, yeah, just uh, real quickly. So what basically what Marty said, but also, uh, you know, look, in a recording studio, you know, you're in a quiet room. <laughs> You've got lots of soundproofing and all that. And on a stage, practically, you know, who knows what's going on there. Uh, So to add to what Marty said, uh, from a practical standpoint, in the live world, which is what I typically work in, uh, like the demo I just did earlier where I added compression and I added makeup gain, if we were on a noisy stage where there were a lot of fans, you know, a lot of times you have lighting, especially in theater where there's like 100 moving lights Everyone has a fan. The you know the background noise comes up. That adjusting the mic the way I did would bring all that up. 
So there are artifacts. Bleed is a big deal when you're actually a, uh, using makeup gain in a compressor. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm just, there are, in fact, there are other tools to help you manage noise that bleeds into your mics uh, that we're not going to get into in this discussion. But um, those are things to be aware of uh, to the point of this question. Mickey? Um, with uh, sound reinforcement and to an extent also uh, theatrical exhibitions of films, um, you are in, there's not much uh, in terms of, say, regulation in terms of the dynamic range within your uh, your mix. That's a different story when it comes to, say, broadcast, where you have very strict rules wherein you must uh, hit this loudness level or RMS level um, while maintaining this specific true peak of your mix. Um, so, uh, say, for example, in in a narrative film in the in the theatrical mix, uh, going back to what I let you guys listen earlier with with voice with a uh, compressing a voice comp you you um in a in a um sound reinforcement mix you're you're not tied to using dynamics processing specifically for um technical reasons to hit those uh target loudness levels um you are more um inclined to use dynamics processing for creative reasons as um as Andy mentioned earlier uh like compressing a voice or some some uh, element in the mix would could give you at least psychologically a thicker maybe more prominent and more present uh sound uh within the overall mix say for example a kick drum uh a kick drum is a very dynamic uh a source sound source and if you want to your thick dr your kick drum to sound a bit more uh thicker or um like some people say fatter um you'd want to bring out the resonance and bring it bring the resonance the very quiet resonance much closer in loudness to the initial transient of the beater hitting the the um the skin so you could use compression there to bring that transient down lower and then use your makeup gain to bring the entire impulse louder, resulting with a um, a much more prominent and uh, uh, say um, present sound within the overall mix. Uh, Thanks. With, oh, with I don't want to lose. Yeah, I'm just, just getting quick, worried like, here. We've been on this about five. Go ahead and finish up, Mickey. And then I want to get to Marty yeah. and Jeff real quick, and then we're going to move on. So I got a lot of questions. Say with a with a, a TV show. Um, say a, an unscripted reality show um uh where you know people are competing against each other when i'm mixing that type of show i typically have a hierarchy of of uh of dialogue people have like say the actual like dialogue while they're competing i give them a certain amount of compression so that they they sit nicely but the host, I will compress the host a bit more so that in the in terms of the hierarchy of, of dialogue, the host ends up being more prominent, more present, and I guess dominant in the mix. But on top of that, the um, 
interviews, the sit-down interviews, say in the tribal council where people, you know, vote other people off, um, I would compress the sit-down interviews even more because the sit-down interviews are what act as the um, storytelling d- device within a reality, a competitive reality show like that. Fascinating. Marty, real quick. Oops, where you're muted, Marty. Okay, so actually I want to play a musical passage, and I want to play it twice, and it's going to be 60 seconds uh, for each one. And I'm going to show this here. Um, okay, just realize we're probably going to lose two or three questions to doing that because we got a bunch here, So, but go ahead. All right, so uh, this is a passage that I think is uh, really, really exemplifies the capabilities of dynamic range. And I'm going to play it first uncompressed, and then I'm going to compress it, and we can see the difference. We're not hearing anything back at this point. Yeah, again, I'm hearing nothing. Okay, then let's move Here. on. Go ahead and move on. Okay. Um, Jeff, you had a quick note before we get to the next question? Yeah, I was just going to play on what Mickey said to show you how complex compression is. Mickey was talking about a kick drum, which has a transient loud attack and then a quieter resonant uh, ring. And he talked about using compression to reduce that attack and raise the resonance. A different setting on the compressor could let the attack through unchanged and then reduce the resonance just by changing the attack and release times and the threshold and ratio. And now you would do the exact opposite to that kick drum. You would in- increase the difference between the attack and the resonance. So same device, same instrument, different settings, and completely different result. Cool. Next question. Next question for Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. Lost in the radio and television commercials, Sound Wars? Uh, Jeff, real quick, and Mitch, and then Jeff Cohen. Okay, so uh, the Loudness Wars, trying to make everything uh, loud. It's it's competing. Uh, I think of this from the music world, that uh, through like the... I have a, a, a image here. This is the the average level of of songs, popular songs over thirty years from uh, nineteen seventy nine to two thousand and nine, and you see that the average level of those songs on CD has gone up over that time. This was the loudness wars. The idea was, if I put I want my mix to be louder than last year's hit. And how do you make it louder? You bring up the average level because the peak is limited by digital. Well, thankfully, we are moving away from that with LUFs and with uh, automatic loudness compensation playback. So um, YouTube and other streaming services, Apple Music, Spotify, all of those, they set everything to be the same average loudness level rather than keeping all the peaks the same so competing in this loudness war actually loses out and kind of the 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 turning point was metallica's death magnetic um people actually found it sounded better on guitar hero because they went back to the stems it was not the fully mastered version and so people are like why does metallica death magnetic sound better on a guitar hero video game than it does on the release because they over compressed over limited the master in the cd release mitchell 
radio and TV are restricted to very specific uh, specifications, how loud they can go, not loud, uh, how high their volume can go with or how high their modulation it can go. And the NAB, uh, since digital came along, uh, came in and said minus 23 luffs is the limit we'd like to see you at. So what uh, television commercials that wanted to be loud started adjusting the loudness, which is basically the RMS to the peak level. And the closer they could get the uh, RMS up there, the more annoyingly loud it got. Um, that was the psychoacoustical loudness that we were, uh, were forced to listen to as far as radio and commercials. And in the old days on AM, uh, the audio was half of the uh, the power that was going out to the transmitter. So the more audio quality, or the more audio you had, the more reach you had, and that's why they did it. Jeff, can you do it in ten seconds? Yes, the internet doesn't follow that. Everyone has different standards. YouTube, Netflix, Spotify. YouTube does an interesting thing to fix it. If you're too hot, they'll crank you down. They won't bring you back up. So you want to try and hit those target levels. Look at Stats for Nerds on YouTube, and you'll see what they've done to every single YouTube video. Very interesting. Let's go to the next question. And it's a question for me. What are your favorite song recordings that you use to evaluate dynamics being applied? Can everybody give me 15 seconds, and we'll start with Jeff Francis. Uh, one of mine is uh, Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. It is a two mic recording uh so it is two microphones into preamps and that was it so it's no dynamics processing and so you can hear the orchestra as it existed cool mitchell uh for dynamics benny and the jets from elton john uh to hear it punching holes because it's very heavy uh bass quality and for just general sound quality so i can hear everything uh igy donald fagan marty what's your favorite yeah, Donald Fagan is great. Super Tramps, Breakfast in America. Uh, but more importantly, things that I've recorded myself because I know what they sound like. There you go. You have an absolute reference because you were there when they were recorded. Next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado. Positional dynamics with 32-bit float and second-order ambisonics. This sounds complicated. Andrew, can you break it down for us simply? I don't know what he's asking, but I wanted to put a plug in for the post show that if we don't get to all your questions, uh, we can we can do it in the post show. And also, uh, uh, like Marty, I also have a Behringer X32 screen and my mic going through it and all that if we want to play later on. Very cool. After Hours is a great source for this. And, you know, I'm trying to get through. I, I just want to such great questions and such great expertise here that I'm, I've been trying to push you alone. And I'm sorry about that. A lot of these answers deserve far more time than we're able to give them. Let's sneak one more in if we can. It's from Douglas Carmichael. When would you sidechain an entire music mix to the kick or other rhythmic element? Ooh, interesting question. Jeff Francis, help us out. So come back for uh, later installments of Dynamics when we talk about side chaining. But this would basically, uh, this would reduce the mix every time the kick hit so that you could uh, actually make the kick stand out a little bit more. It's a way to, to deal with dense mixes to let elements. It's kind of an automated mixing technique. Very nice. Uh, yeah, we can sneak one more in. Let's go ahead. Next question. Next one in from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. I once saw a graphical meter running on a PC looking like a colorful carpet wandering from bottom to top while analyzing audio. Can you please explain what that is all about? Jeffrey. Jeff Francis. 
I'm guessing that was uh, either one of two things. It was either a spectrograph display, which is displaying energy per frequency, or it could also be there are a couple of dynamic meters that show you a level history, a level histogram of audio levels. Cool. We're going to have to sneak out into office hours after hours. Remember, it's there 24-7. I know a lot of these people will probably be hanging out over there who will be able to get more into detail. A couple of quick announcements before we finish up Thursday, November 30th. Don't forget the EVS show playback and recording workflow. Uh, Robert Green is going to be our special guest. That is tomorrow on the show in our second hour. Uh, the Squares TV application tonight with Michael Forrest. Uh, that's at 11 a.m., so when, uh, two hours after the show finishes today. The Isadora Lab is tomorrow at 11 a.m. So those of you who are learning that, thanks so much for everybody being here. Let's see our clock traversal today. We managed to cover 87,492 miles. That's 140,805 kilometers or more than 692 million bananas laid end to end. That's how far we travel to get you the answers to your questions today. We will do the same thing tomorrow. Uh, I am appreciative of everybody who came today. We have to thank the panelists. You guys are amazing. There is so much uh collected wisdom here and people come and share it freely every day that is what makes office hours work so thank you to those of you who ask questions to our audience to our producers we call you producers because really you drive the show with your questions thank you so much for all your uh hard work and the back end usually unsung although we have mickey sneaking in today who's often in the back end doing one of these jobs and helping everybody hear this show better than anyone can imagine possible, but for everybody who works behind the scenes in the back end, thank you so much for all of your effort. We truly appreciate it. I'm going to get out of your way and we'll let the credits roll. Thank you for listening and watching. And I think Squares is 10 a.m. Pacific, if I'm not mistaken, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. for those of us that are on the East Coast. Ah, I, it, mine says 11 a.m. Pacific, so I might be wrong. I, I grabbed this off the website, so pay attention to whether it's mm. 10 or 11. Today's email says 10 a.m., so just okay, good. tune Let's in go at 10 a.m. Pacific and just stay there until something shows up. That's right. Bring a cup of coffee and relax, and, and it'll happen either at 10 or 11, probably at yeah. 10. If my dynamics are set up well for whispering oh, in the post-show... I think I need to tweak them. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, Whisper. for being here today. Truly appreciate it. I got to sneak out. I got to go travel. Negative 20.